Welcome to The Hub Dialogues, a podcast that celebrates big thinkers and bold ideas about a better future for all of us. I'm Rudyard Griffiths, the executive director of The Hub, Canada's leading source for analysis and insights on public policy. Our goal at The Hub is to escape the opinion bubbles of conventional conversation and prod our popular discourse back to the issues and ideas that can shape our collective future. On The Hub Dialogues, you'll hear Sean Spear, our editor-at-large, in conversation with some of the world's sharpest minds and brightest thinkers about the issues and ideas they're passionate about and that they think we should spend more time focusing on. The Hub's podcasts are generously supported by the Ira Gluskin and Maxine Granosky gluskin Charitable Foundation. Enjoy this Hub Dialogue. Welcome to Hub Dialogues. I'm your host, Sean Spear editor-at-large at at The Hub. I'm honored to be joined today by Mark Mills, a senior fellow at the Manhattan Institute and a faculty fellow at Northwestern University's McCormick School of Engineering and Applied Science, who's written extensively about innovation, energy, and climate policy. He himself has a physics background and has worked in the White House Science Office and the Reagan administration, as well as Canada's own version of Bell Labs. I first encountered Mark's work a few years ago when I attended a talk he delivered on his book, Digital Cathedrals, about the extraordinary energy demands of modern information infrastructure, such as data centers. I'm grateful to speak with him about a range of topics, including recent news of progress on nuclear fusion, his views on the energy transition, and ultimately why he's optimistic about what he predicts will be the, quote, roaring 2020s. Mark, thanks for joining us at Hub Dialogues. Thanks, Sean. And of course, uh, the 2020s are kind of, you know, mewing and not roaring at the moment, but, you know, they'll get there. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Let's start with nuclear fusion. We're speaking the week of December 12th, in which we've learned of new progress on nuclear fusion out of a, libra- a laboratory, rather, run by the U.S. Department of Energy. You're a bit skeptical, though. You wrote in an op-ed in New York Post that, quote, fusion is always 50 years away. What did you mean, and why should we be careful in the way that we think and talk about the progress here? Well, now, now it might really be 50 years away instead of always 50 years away. That's, that's what the progress really means. I, you know, I, I think I, 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 in my piece, as you know, I was uh, properly enthusiastic as a former physicist. I mean, former practicing physicist. Once you're a physicist, I guess you're always one. It's kind of imprints your brain in an indelible if perverted way of how to think about the world. Anyway, you know, it's a really big it's a really big step in the physics of fusion, and and people should understand that the facility that did this it's a 500 foot long, seven story high laser machine. I mean, this is a big machine. It's a science machine. Costs almost four billion dollars to build, uh, and it wasn't it wasn't designed to make commercial nuclear fusion. In fact, it was designed. To study the physics of fusion in nuclear bombs, just to put a, an unpleasant spin on what they're really doing there. But the physics of fusion, how the sun and the stars make energy and, and how they make the elements that we, we use, that's where they came from. I mean, the stars that we didn't create created the elements that we, we use for everything. It It's a uh, really exciting. They got what's called first ignition. Ignition meaning that the energy that they've put directly into the little fuel pellet, which is, you know, a tiny little sort of eraser-sized area of uh, a derivative of hydrogen called tritium and deuterium. These are basically hydrogen, right? Isotope, so-called isotopes of hydrogen, forms of hydrogen. 
they they got more energy out than they put in by 20%. And that's that's a big deal. You know, it's called ignition. It's like when you start your car, you have to have an ignition. Okay, you have a spark plug gave you ignition, assuming you have that kind of car, and 99% of people do, but anyway. Then you still need a car. You still need the rest of the, the system. And of course, they only got ignition. So that's a big deal in physics. But the leap from there to building a power machine, which is why I was saying it's 50 years away, it's give you a sense of why it's a long way away. The lasers that they used to do that consumed 200 units of energy to produce the one unit of fusion energy. So the grid power was still 200 fold more than the output. To make a proper energy machine, you need, roughly speaking, 100 times the output of what your input was. Otherwise, you're not producing energy, you're consuming it, right? That's problem one. And those lasers don't exist. We don't know how to build them yet. We'll figure it out. I mean, engineers are really good at this kind of stuff. We'll figure it out. Might take 10 or 20 years, another 10 or 20 to build them at scale. And then the fuel pellet, this is important. Um, The fuel pellets are are made like jewelry right now. Um, They're handmade. They cost about a million dollars each. That machine uses up, you know, a few hundred fuel pellets a year. So you could do the math, maybe 500 or something like that. Uh, you're going to need about the 10 fuel pellets per second to make a power machine, not a science machine. And th- those pellets obviously won't won't be, you can't make, you have, they'll have to cost a lot less than a million dollars each if we need millions of them a year per machine. Uh, and that's an engineering problem that's not trivial to to manufacture things like that at those kinds of scales. But again, we'll figure it out. So the two buckets that I was trying to get people's heads around were the science bucket. It is a big deal to, to, to conquer these science uh, uh, barriers. <clears throat> then the engineering bucket to make machines that society can use it takes a while. I mean, I, I I wrote the piece and it's in my book, as you know, you know, from the first internal combustion engine to the first practical car was about 50 years. The first uh, steam engine to the practical first practical trains was about 50 years. From the uh, first photovoltaic cell to practical photovoltaic cells, pretty close to 50 years. From the first lithium, conventional lithium chemistry for a battery to practical electric cars, about 50 years. I mean, it was mid-70s when the lithium chemistry was invented. So this is, this is a, a timeline that has not accelerated for 200 years. So this idea we have accelerating technology, that's only true in the domains of information technology. Uh, so energy technology, big machines to run society, they, they operate on timescales at civilization levels that are measured in many, many decades. That's just the, the way it is. We'll follow up with some of those observations when I come to you specifically about the energy transition. But before we get there, Mark, uh, your op-ed sets out three fallacies that can influence how we think about breakthrough technologies, including with respect to energy. What are they and how do they distort our thinking? Well, I, you know, as I look at what people say and the questions I get, what policymakers write, what pundits and prognosticators are, you know, excitedly babbling about in the chattering classes, you know, <laughs> you look at all this stuff and you try to see patterns in it. Well, this is another fault of being a physicist, but psychologists do the same thing. It's not just physicists. You look for patterns. We all do. You know, humans are pattern-seeking beasts, and patterns have meaning. So I distilled the pattern of fallacies and understanding energy technology into sort of three rules. Um, the, the first one that I, I did was the uh, 
uh, the magic wand fallacy that we could we could come up with a new technology. Again, this is about energy. Uh, it is true of lots of technologies, but energy in particular, and that one new technology is going to solve, quote unquote, you know, all our problems. Well, new en- no, I mean, we still burn wood. The world burns. In fact, the world gets 300% more energy from burning wood today than for all the wind and solar in the world combined. We, in fact, burn more wood now than we did 100 years ago to make energy. Uh, wood's, wood's, wood's not gone away. So the magic wand of coal, then oil, then gas didn't eliminate it's the use of uh, wood, in fact, even. So there's no magic wand that that you can solve all the problems or make things happen overnight. They take a long time, So as I just said. The second fallacy, uh, I called the helicopter fallacy because I happen to like machines and I think helicopters are poorly appreciated as one of the most amazing machines humans have invented. In fact, there's a great book for those who like the history of technology called The God Machine. And it's about the invention of the helicopter because Making light, making machines that can fly humans required wings, uh, to, you know, to, to basically tri- to emulate nature, right? The, the idea of a helicopter dates back to some drawings that, you know, Da Vinci, Leonardo Da Vinci had, but no one has ever been able to make a, a heavy machine that can just take off vertically. That's a helicopter. Really amazing. And when commercial practical helicopters were invented, the, the, the chattering classes were just all aghast and bubble and, you know, going to change everything. It's going to eliminate cars and airplanes. It's going to be, uh, everything's going to be different. Well, apparently not. Uh, it turns out they have a very useful niche. It's a multi-billion dollar industry, but you would no more use, as I wrote, a helicopter to fly, aclo- fly across the Atlantic than you would use a nuclear reactor to power a train or to be facetious but true use solar panels to power a country. You know, some things just don't make sense. And that's sort of the helicopter fallacy. They have utility, but it's specific. The third fallacy was, it's an easier one to describe. It's uh, it's the moonshot fallacy. Uh, especially, in, this is true, but lots of stuff from cancer to climate change. Uh, and every politician loves to, to call it the moonshot. Or they pervert it and call it the earth shot. But, you know, the moonshot. Uh, well, it was really impressive. I'm a, I'm a, you know, I'm a moon junkie. I'm a space. I wanted to be an astrophysicist when I, when I went to, when I started my education at Queen's University in the great, the great, uh, great white north of Canada. Uh, and by white, I mean snowy. I'm not making a race statement here. Uh, it's a snowy country. So uh, I love this stuff, but putting a dozen men on the moon, and they were all men then, there'll be women in the future, but putting 12 men on the moon once, uh, is doesn't change everything. It's amazing feat. To the the analogy in energy would be we have to do the equivalent of put all of humanity on the moon, and we know that's not possible. I mean, we know how to put dozens of people on the moon. We might even put a hundred people on the moon, maybe a thousand, but all of humanity, not going to happen. Not in, in, except in science fiction. And that fallacy is really important in terms of what technology can accomplish, what engineers can do, especially in energy. That's a good segue to my next question, Mark. Let me set it up. You've written extensively about the so-called energy transition and national and international goals of net zero emissions. You wrote in an August paper for the Manhattan Institute, for instance, that, quote, the energy transition is not feasible in any meaningful time frame. And it's a dangerous delusion to base policies on the idea that such a transition is possible. Let me start with a two-part question. First, 
Why is it infeasible? And second, why do you think so many governments have come to base their policymaking on this unfeasible idea? Well, the second one is the political and psychology question, not the physics question. But I'll take a stab at it in a second. The first one is, uh, you know, why isn't it going to happen? I mean, that's why I wrote. That's why I've written a lot about it. Why you have to keep writing about it because people keep saying things that are just they fall into. Again, I'll, I'll do the 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 uh, the rule of threes. I like threes, as you know, from my race, recent book. Uh, so there's there's sort of three buckets for technology and energy. There there are some things that are just impossible. They just won't happen. You have to understand the physics to know the things that are impossible. There are some things that are infeasible, not impossible. But we really don't know how to do it. And then there are some things that are just silly. Yet we can do it, but we shouldn't. So those are the three categories, other than the things you ought to do. But the three categories of things that won't happen are those. And so when I when I look at the claim that we're going to eliminate hydrocarbons, uh, we're going to reduce the use of hydrocarbons as a percentage of the world's energy. We have been. I mean, we spent $5 trillion in the Western world in the last 20 years to avoid hydrocarbons, and we have reduced the percentage of the energy the world gets from hydrocarbons. It used to be 84% 20 years ago. Now it's 82%. There, it's a pretty good reduction, $5 trillion, two percentage points later. But it went. It, it was a, a declining percentage. It wasn't a decline in absolute use. The absolute quantity of hydrocarbons has increased in the last 20 years by an amount equal to adding 6 Saudi Arabia's worth of oil demand to the world. So it's a pretty big increase. Uh, that's that alone should tell you something, right? Um, if you so if you look at the underlying engineering requirements, the material requirements, the cost requirements, the hug and get along that we all have to do the same thing requirements in on the whole planet, all you know, the constellation of requirements would tell you it's it's not going to happen in any kind of time frame that has any meaning. And you have to dissect everybody's what's in their head that they have tropes about, oh, it'll go faster, they'll get better, technology can do this, can do that. In every case, you have to dissect it based on the three metrics, right? Can't happen ever, right? Batteries don't get better as good as oil and energy density. Just won't happen in the physics of the universe we live in, period. Batteries work just fine, but they're really expensive way to store energy. So using a lot of them for all energy is just infeasible. It's not going to happen. Pushing them as an alternative to regular cars, it's just silly because it's expensive. Not that you can't do it. So those, it, it, all these things fall into those kind of three buckets. Uh, so I write about that. People, you know, complain that you're not optimistic or you're not creative or you don't recognize all the progress. Well, no, no, I do. I, I study this obsessively. I'm uh, more than I should. But pe- people are 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 being either naive or insufficiently curious about the underlying facts or silly. Um, I mean, there's lots of problems, which brings me to answer the question of the psychology and why do governments do what they do? Well, um, that's, you know, (laughs) governments do a lot of really silly things, both the Canadian Parliament and the American Congress. uh, and, and, And thankfully, because we're democracies, have the right to pass laws that just violate the law of nature. I mean, they can they can violate the laws of common sense. They can violate the laws of economics. They do it all the time. But I would rather live in a system that's democratic where we try things that are silly and then we pay the price and reset rather than live in a dictatorship where the mistakes and you can guarantee their mistakes because the dictators are no smarter than the, than the democratically elected people. In fact, maybe they're dumber, but let's just assume they're 
equally smart. Everybody's going to be wrong about the future. You want to have the flexibility to adapt around what's actually possible. So I, I'm not, you know, I don't like, that's why I write in the policy space. I don't like when things that are done that are really, I think, potentially immoral and, dam- and damaging. I mean, Europe is in, a, the reason it's in the fix it's in, uh, it can be reasonably laid at the feet of, not Putin, Putin is an exogenous variable. There, the, the fact that Europe is so unable to respond uh, and to the loss of energy from Russia is because they put so much of their money into non-hydrocarbons. They don't have surge capability. They don't have flexibility. They, they've made a fragile energy system by depending too much on wind and solar. And that fragility is costing them both politically, economically, and socially. And building more wind and solar that won't reduce that fragility, the economic and geopolitical fragility, it will increase it. I think politicians in Europe now know that. A lot of them do. I, I think they really do. I don't think they're admitting it so much publicly, but I think they are privately uh, facing up to those very harsh facts, which are very consequential, which is why I say it's a dangerous delusion, because the consequences are dangerous. They're dangerous to human life. They're dangerous to our geopolitical status, and they're dangerous to our economies uh, if we make energy decisions that don't work, because it's beyond obvious to state that nothing exists, nothing is possible without energy. Everything, Everything requires energy, and because of that, you want energy to be two things, reliable and cheap. I mean, those are utterly critical and sacrosanct metrics for a healthy society. And the energy path that Europe put itself on made energy more expensive and less reliable, uh, less reliable in every in every sense. You're one click away from getting access to all the Hub's best analysis and insights. Visit our website, www.thehub.ca now and sign up for our weekly email news digest every saturday morning we'll send to your inbox the cutting edge thinking and analysis of our smartest contributors on the week that was dive into the big issues and ideas moving the public conversation courtesy of the hub again you can grab that exclusive email newsletter right now free of charge at www.thehub.ca now back to our program in an interview with Bill Crystal in April 2022, you talked about the magnitude of investment in Gee, you're, you're, It's like you're like a stalker. You mean to see all this stuff? <laughs> Nobody watches Bill Crystal. I'm kidding. Let me set this up, Mark, because the analogy that you drew there is really stuck with me. And in the sense that it's helped to convey the kind of magnitude of investment and progress that would need to happen to achieve an energy transition by 2050. I'm mostly paraphrasing, but you said something like, it would involve a 9,000% increase in the infrastructure of wind, solar, and batteries in the next 20 years or so. And to put that in some context, you explain, the state of wind, solar, and battery infrastructure today is about the equivalent of where it was for oil and gas in 1950, which has grown by 1,000% over the past 50 years or so. So in other words, a 9,000% increase in 20 years versus a thousand percent increase in 50 years. And, and as I say, Mark, that analogy has, has been something that has stayed with me when I think and, and read about some of these questions. Why don't I just ask you to elaborate a bit on your insight here and more generally the impracticality of so-called getting off oil and gas, the technological impracticality that is. You know, a, a reason I did, did use that analogy is, is 
is to get people's heads out of thinking that there's something magically different about wind, solar, and batteries or hydrogen. You know, pick pick your poison. It doesn't matter. Because everything requires building physical infrastructure. All energy machines have to be built by mining something, making steel, concrete, glass, getting copper, molybdenum, zinc, you know, rhenium. I mean, all kinds of metals and elements are needed to build these machines. It takes time. It takes backhoes and, D, you know, Caterpillar D9s and John Deere equipment. And it takes, you know, trucks and people and cranes. It's all the Yeah. It's all the same. I mean, let's just even take inventory approval out. Just assume that we could do things as easily as we did in the 1950s because the regulation, regulatory footprint was lighter then. It was obviously easier to build things fast. We built things then the way the Chinese do now, basically. If you want, look, look at the Empire State Building, infamously built or famously built, depending on your, your, your view of skyscrapers, uh, in less than a year, right? Could we do that today? Well, Germany just built a skyscraper class piece of infrastructure called a liquid natural gas import terminal in eight months, not eight years, eight months they did it. They went from starting it because of the invasion in Ukraine in April, and they just opened it up last week. We can still do stuff like that. Okay, but set that aside. That's a whole separate point. Assuming we could do stuff like that still, like we did in the 50s, the physical stuff that we build to make energy, the hydrocarbon energy, in total energy supply terms in the 1950s, to your point, was equal to the physical infrastructure that we have built today globally for wind and solar, the amount of energy supplied to the world in absolute terms, not in relative terms. So the wind and solar industry is very big today. It's only a few percent of world's energy, but it's still, that's very big. And what I looked at was a very simple you know, construction question, how much did the oil and gas infrastructure of the world grow, the physical stuff from the mid fifties over the next 50 years, it grew by a thousand percent. So a lot, right? It, it, it supplied. So the world's demand for the hydrocarbons led to a construction program that increased the infrastructure by a thousand percent in a half a century. So we're starting from the same point. But doing the same thing, we're, we're building stuff. And it's the same point as oil and gas for the 1950s. And we wanted to expand, and it will. And let's just say we wanted to expand faster, to your point. Well, to get to the goals people have in their heads, uh, we have to expand it not by 1,000%, but by 9,000% for the same starting point, same kind of hardware, same kind of trucks. And we want to do it not in 50 years, but in 20 years. Okay, there's no evidence the construction industry can move that much faster. And what I didn't say in the, and I don't think in the interview with Bill Crystal was that to get to the same amount of energy increase, you don't have to have a, it's not just a thousand percent versus 9,000% increase in infrastructure. It's actually even bigger than that because to produce the same amount of energy from wind and solar, the physical infrastructure, the hardware and all the stuff, roughly speaking is 300% bigger. So to do your you know, elementary school arithmetic, that would mean we wanna do in a construction sense, something like 10,000% increase in 20, 25 years of the same kind of activity as we managed in 50 years to do a thousand percent. So cut the time in half and increase the quantity of stuff we're building by tenfold. Okay. Um, I don't know. I just, I'll take the bet. Not going to happen. It's just not going to happen. So that's when I say, I'm not going to happen. I just, how can you be so sure? Well, show me. 
show me the construction program, the machinery, the way we can make concrete and move steel and, and build wind turbines that are the size of the Eiffel Tower uh, faster now, in, in just in terms of tons of stuff per, per, per day than 50 years ago. We're a little faster and we're going to get a little faster and, because we've, we've got really good machines, but we're not a, we're not a, like a thousand percent faster. It's, we're just not. It's silly. So these are these are um, that's why I use the provocative word delusion for these these paths. They're delusional, even though they look good on PowerPoint. They don't exist in the physical world. Now, Mark, I suspect that most of our listeners will be open to and persuaded by those arguments that the facts, of course, don't lie. But some may respond negatively to your argument that these alternative forms of energy can only be a supplement rather than a replacement, and that what we actually need to do is boost oil and gas production. What's your argument? Are you saying that we need to, in effect, trade off our goals of emissions reductions for economic and geopolitical reasons? Or do you think we can still make climate progress even as oil and gas production grows? Well, so first of all, I don't speak in terms of the language of climate progress. I mean, I just, for, for a whole lot of reasons, because it takes us down a rabbit hole of different issues. So my my focus is not about climate progress per se, but pointing out that what for whatever reason it doesn't matter what it makes no difference what what you think about carbon dioxide emissions effect in the next 50 to 100 years or today if you think it's having an effect today which is disputable but everybody thinks it's having an effect today it makes no difference it doesn't affect the physics of energy it doesn't affect how fast a, a, a d9 can move or how much how we make concrete it has no it has no bearing whatsoever the only relevance is is one direction. If you're saying I don't want to burn hydrocarbons, you have to tell me what you want to do instead, and then you have to be honest about what doing that means in dollars, in geopolitics, in environmental impacts, in water use, in real pollution, in and who we buy from. You, you just so what I'm trying to do is illuminate the trade we're making. If you don't want to use the liquids and gases that we use today for eighty percent well and coal so coal gets you to 82 percent take coal out oil and gas are more than half um, if you don't want to do that you have to be honest about what the real world consequences are of the alternative and then you have to ask yourself if you can actually do it and that's that's why i'm doing that not so the, the different question that gets asked I'll, I'll, I'll rephrase your question this way because if the issue is not climate progress the question really is, all right, if you are honest and admit there is nothing you can do to reduce the emissions of carbon dioxide, you can slow the rate of increase through depression, recession, and deprivation. That's one way. We learned that with lockdowns. You can actually just very slightly reduce global energy use. And it was just very slight. It's amazingly little. Shut the world down and you get a few percentage point reduction in world energy use. Uh, you get a lot of gasoline use going down, but world energy use didn't go down very much. So you can do that. And there are people who really want the deprivation path. They say we have to have degrowth now. So let's be honest about that. Or you're going to have to admit that carbon dioxide emissions are not going to go down. What they, they're going to do is what they've already been doing for decades. And and, and they've been doing it in the, in the two decades of so-called climate awareness. They're going up. So then the question is, what do I do? My answer is not facetious, it's honest. We have to be patient. Because anything we want to do to change energy infrastructures will take far longer than policymakers and pundits are proposing. It's just going to take time. And if we're going to take time, and whether that's both for the new science, better technology, all of it will take time, changing infrastructures. 
and if it will take time, and if you if you in your heart of hearts believe there will be negative consequences, then you have to be honest about resilience. We should be spending our money, the precious resource, the second most precious resource in civilization after the our time is our money, and they're intimately related phenomenologies. We should be spending our time and money on resilience. We should be protecting infrastructures and people and societies from the consequences of nature's deprivations, even if we didn't cause them. And if we did cause them, all the more reason to protect people. And we can't afford to squander money on things that don't help when we should be spending money on things that protect people. So a lot of the climate uh, apocalyptics reject that as giving up. It's not giving up. It's actually acknowledging that you think there's a consequence and protecting people from the consequence by spending money in that kind of engineering. So, I mean, it's not it's not a satisfactory answer, but it but it, it's it genuinely is an independent magisteria. The the climate science debate is only relevant to the extent that it's motivating policies that are damaging that are not possible. That's the that's the relevance. Not the relevance is not the inverse. What do I do to make climate progress? You can't. It, it sounds facetious to say you can't, but if you're honest about what the data show, you can't. If the United States and Canada ceased to, to exist tomorrow and emitted zero, we imported nothing. We just evaporated. We didn't import carbon-intensive products. We just we emitted zero. We all we all died and went away. The world's carbon dioxide emissions are going to go up because what the rest of the world is doing, they aren't following our path, and they can't. This is the point. Is they can't follow our path, if our path to zero. And we aren't on a path to zero. The CO2 emissions reductions that have occurred in some countries are actually elusive and not real in the sense that this is why Europe is turning to a border adjustment tax. It's because what we've done in, in, in North America and in Europe is outsourced the energy intensive and therefore carbon intensive uh, industries, especially mining and metals industries, to parts of the world that are willing to do it. And they use hydrocarbons there. Let's shift the conversation, Mark, in our remaining time together to innovation, technology, and economic growth more generally. In the face of growing commentary about decadence and stagnation, your most recent book, The Cloud Revolution, sets out a far more optimistic story. You write about the convergence of different technologies that will, in your judgment, produce something like the roaring 2020s. What's your key insight that the stagnationists are missing? Yeah, it's a little tough. It's a tough market to be an optimist in right now. Uh, you know, so <laughs> and I, so I stipulate two things. First, the book's time horizon is you know, the next decade or so, deliberately, not the next fifty to one hundred years, not the next ten months or election cycles. And um, and, I, and of course, I wrote in my introduction to my book and ended my book with this in the in the uh, epilogue. You know, governments can Sovietize economies. Uh, they can destroy economies, even even during periods of potential growth. So politics matters a lot. This this does getting the politics right matters enormously, and uh, I think we have a decent shot at getting it right. We just often get it wrong for a while. But the reason I'm optimistic is is uh, it, it, I would say it, to put it in the simplest terms, technology doesn't make progress in sort of linear, even steps. 
It happens in spurts or waves. Waves aren't cycles. So people have in their head cycles that are they're predictable in the sense of they have every 10 years, every 50 years. That's not what happens. We have waves of innovation. And if you look over history, you know, the, the Industrial Revolution was one set's wave for in the second Industrial Revolution. There was an Industrial Revolution in the Middle Ages that was a wave of innovation around the windmill at the time and the water mill and the, the development of a camshaft and the gears and pulleys that we, we've had, you know, uh, periods of innovation. And that's the nature of the beast. That's how it has. That's just how life is. It doesn't occur uniformly and occurs in spurts. And we we haven't had a wave of innovation as foundational as occurred a century ago in basically that mature of the 1920s. At that time, that was the time not of the invention of, but the maturation of innovations in three different distinct domains. And they all happened simultaneously. We had in the sort of the machine domain, we had the car and the airplane and the power plant to pick three obvious ones, none of which were invented in the 1920s, but all of which matured then. And this is true of all technologies. When they matter is when they're maturing, not when they're invented, when they begin to mature. And then if you think in the materials domain in the 1920s, we had then the maturation of high-strength uh, steels, high-strength concrete and polymers and pharmaceuticals. These were materials revolutions. Uh, we started making things out of stuff that we never made things out of before. We made things that were artificial uh, at scale. Uh, artificial fertilizer, which revolutionized food production, all happened in the 1920s, all invented in the decades before, but matured then. And similarly, in 1920s, we had the professionalization of science occur. It was the first time we had the information revolution around science, but the information revolution of the maturation of telephony. That's when it took off, right? And radio took off then, and TV began shortly after. These things all happened. They're all independent. If you think about every one of the things I wrote, I talk about, historians will write about the, the history through the lens of each one of those. But what's interesting to me is all of those happened contemporaneously. That con confluence is what gave us the explosive economic growth of the 20th century. We still had wars. We did bad things. We had the Soviet Union. I mean, all sorts of grotesque things happened. But uh, underlying that was the biggest expansion of human wealth in all of history. We eradicated, you know, the percentage of human beings that are in abject poverty collapsed. Collapsed. In the 20th century, still there's still people in abject poverty, but the percent in abject poverty collapsed. So, if you use that metric and look at the same three domains today, what I'm proposing, and I outline in my book in detail, because you, it's hard, it's easier to tell the history the way I did. The future takes more time because people don't believe you until you give them the taxonomies. You think about it, think about it in those three domains of things that were invented in the last decade or two, but are just now maturing and haven't quite taken off yet. In the machine domains, the two things that are the most obvious that are, are there our capacity to manufacture things at uh, molecular atomic scale, that we actually build things from atom up, which is what sort of 3D printing is and molecular machines are. The transistors are basically molecular machines. We build we build molecules and atoms. This is unprecedented capabilities. It's just beginning to bleed into every part of manufacturing, just beginning to, because we just figured out how to do it in the last couple of decades at scale. And then, of course, autonomy is the biggest machine difference. Robots, in a word, right? But real robots, not not washing. A washing machine is a robot because it's autonomous. You don't have to stand there. You put stuff in, you leave it. That's, you say robot, everybody in their head knows what I read. I want something walking around and helping me, okay? Is that kind of robot possible? Now, we know it is because you can you can lease one in, a, in the business world. You can lease walking robots. They exist. Now, there are, how many of them are in the world? Only a million. But there was zero 
20 years ago. There's a million of them now. There'll be hundreds of millions. It's, and they're pr- profoundly impactful. Drones be another category of autonomous machines that are just beginning to show up. So the machine world is just on the cusp of changing. The materials world's changing. We make materials now that are, uh, you know, they, the words themselves tell you a lot about them. They're self-healing materials. They're self-assembling materials. We make biocompatible electronics, which means you can swallow things that would resemble microscopic computers to do diagnostics in real time. These aren't imaginary things or things that exist. And of course, in the information world, sort of the glue of my book, which is why it's called the cloud revolution, is on the information side, we've done something that hasn't been done in a long time. We built a new infrastructure. And the cloud is not a computer infrastructure. This is the, the conceptual elite that's needed. Yes, it uses computers, but computers compute. The cloud provides advice and inference. When you ask Google Map to do something, it gives you advice. That's a computer route. It gives you several routes based on traffic and increasingly weather. This is true in manufacturing. Now we have we have natural language computing that's resident in the cloud that's accessible anywhere that gives advice. Advice giving is really, really different and consequential. It's a powerful, powerful amplifier for human capacity and capabilities. And it's really disruptive. It's not all... You know, so I'm not I'm not naive. Technologies all have negative effects. AI will kill jobs, like the like like the automated loom killed the jobs for the Luddites. Of course it did, and and of course drones can be used for weapons. People will always fight. They they seem to want to, but the constellation of those three revolutions are going on now, and that they're all confluent simultaneously is really unusual and extremely, extremely powerful and will lead to a, a wealth expansion in the next, uh, the rest of the 21st century that will be equal to, I think, or greater than what happened in the 20th century. And, and the epicenter of this is North America, by the way. I say U.S. in my book because, you know, I'm a Canadian and all that, but I, it's, it's, it's U.S.-centric. Waterloo is incredible. I know the BlackBerry came from Canada. Believe me, I remember. And I was at Bell Labs at Canada. We, 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 we put the first communications cable in with the fiber optics in Canada. And, you know, Canada was the home of the first radio. Canada has a role here. But when I say U.S., I mean that the North American ecosystem is the epicenter of all this innovation. Not the only place, but it is the epicenter. So it's very bullish for America, not for China. Our demographics are better. They're not perfect, but they're a whole lot better than China's. They're better than Europe's. Europe's just, you know, disappearing into itself. Uh, so fundamentally, I'm bullish on North America. I'm bullish on the economy long run. Uh, I'm bearish on China. Uh, but you know what happens in the next year or two? And we before my book was published, I wrote the obvious. There'll be another war. And you know, sure enough, two months after it came out, Ukraine gets invaded. I mean, pe- people do that. They do bad stuff. We got bad people in the world. But my my underlying theme in the book is to illuminate the structural shifts that are going on across all these domains and not based on idealistic, oh, it would be nice if we had X or shouldn't we have Y? Like, shouldn't we have the cure for cancer? I don't predict the cure for cancer by any means. I, I predict the fact that we'll much more likely to find it now because artificial intelligence and AI and the kind of uh, the kind of tools we have. I mean, we when I say we can make materials at the molecular scale, there are commercially viable means to fabricate so-called nanomachines, machines that are smaller than cells that are harmless to you that you could put in your bloodstream 
that will physically drill a hole in a cancer cell. In other words, instead of bombarding your body with chemicals, the machine identifies a cancer cell, lands on it like a drilling machine, drills a hole in the wall of the cancer cell, it injects a lethal dose to the heart of the cancer cell instead of all the healthy cells, because it only and, and then evaporates, it self-destructs itself because it, it it is programmed to disappear. Those kinds of science fiction founding things exist today. So the whole theme of my book is around forecasting based on an aphorism that I steal from the management consultant, Peter Drucker. And I have a, I have a, an appendix on forecasting. But Peter Drucker said he stopped predicting the future. You know, when he made a prediction in 1929, the stock market was going to go up. He made the prediction in night on the literally the eve of the crash, the biggest stock crash in history. So he said he spent the rest of his life only predicting things that had already happened. And it was a cute line, but it, but it's a meaningful line in technology because if you look at the pantheon of things that have already been invented, not in a lab bench, but moved into commercialization timelines, that they're either about to become commercial, like a computer you can swallow a day to do your blood diagnostics, uh, or you know, air taxis. Well, you're not going to be an air taxi for a while, but we have drones that work just fine that carry cargo. There's going to be thousands of them deployed in Africa. They already are deployed in Africa to deliver medications and high-value supplies. So we, what's already been invented and is just beginning to commercialize or is about to be commercialized tells you a lot about the near future, much more than a patent or an aspiration. So I, I'm, I'm entirely focused on the, the, the feature of what's just been invented across those three domains that I described. Mark, I know you have to go for another interview, but this has just been a fascinating conversation, as is your book, The Cloud Revolution, How the Convergence of New Technologies Will Unleash the Next Economic Boom and the Roaring 2020s. I have so many other questions that to put to you. We'll have to have you back on the program. Mark Mills, thank you so much for joining us at Hub Dialogues. Thanks, Sean. Happy to come back anytime. And uh, let's keep our countrymen warm in Canada. <laughs> Thank you for listening to this episode of The Hub Dialogues, brought to you by The Hub, Canada's leading source for analysis and insights on public policy. We hope that you enjoyed this episode. Please share your favorite Hub podcast with friends and family, subscribe wherever you get your audio online, and leave us a rating and review. We greatly appreciate your feedback and comments. I'm the Hub's Executive Director, Rudyard Griffiths. The host of today's program was Sean Spear, the Hub's Editor-at-Large. This episode was produced by Amal Atar Guzman. The Hub's audio producers are Alex Glutch and David Matta. The Hub podcasts are generously supported by the Ira Gluskin and Maxine Gronowski-Gluskin Charitable Foundation. Thanks for listening.